Maybe that's a feeling of agitation caused by the presence or imminence of danger. Why do you think people believe in ghosts? easily frightened, we advise you not to watch this film. On the other hand, if you enjoy the violent emotions, this film is for you. into hell, no one's life you save, crumble in your grave. Where did you hide her? In a safer place than in your truck. Sometimes I could kill you, Iris. Just once. I want you to make love to me before I die. You mustn't speak like that. Death has no power to separate us. You swore you'd never come back into this room again. I want to stay here alone with my mother. Frank, your mother's dead. So is Anna. She was in this area. Did you see anyone then? No. Who are you? Police. If you enjoy the violent emotions, this film is for you.
ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Inside Movies Galore. I'm your host, David Streggy, and I'm going to uh, uh, give the reins over here to Cutie, uh, because she has uh, uh, endeavored to uh, uh, host tonight's uh, 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 film discussion. So, um, I can, I can, you have the floor. Cutie's our host tonight. Hi, welcome to another episode of Inside Movies Galore. I'm your host, Katie Cadaver, and I am joined by our usual crew. I think everybody's here tonight. We have a fellow dead girl, Red Raven. Hi. Hi. Um, our horror collector extraordinaire, Dustin. You're supposed to say hi, but I not say your name. Oh, I'm, I'm saying hi now there you go. because you went into insane echo yeah, mode. Hi. Oh, sorry about that. Well, we also have our YouTube sensation, Stephenson. Uh, Hi. And our resident, Kyle. Hi. Hi, Dane. Aaron Kabuki Jake. Hi. And our usual, David Strage. Hello, everyone. So, Joe D'Amato's 1979 film, Buio Omega, and also known as Buried Alive. And Beyond the Dark. Um, and, spoiler warning, I said that. <laughs> spoiler warning, we will be discussing many aspects of the film. That This is your official warning. So, I am really excited to talk about this movie. It happens to be probably one of my favorite film discoveries of 2000. Right into a synopsis about the film. Um, it starts out with a young, rich taxidermist who loses his fiance to some voodoo magic on the part of his jealous older housekeeper. But in an attempt to keep his fiance with him forever, he digs up her body, guts her, stuffs her, and essentially turns her into a doll that he keeps in his house. Uh, he also finds himself killing and disposing of several other young women throughout the film with the help of his deranged housekeeper, who seems to be driven by her unnatural attraction to him. I've heard it referred to as the ultimate spaghetti splatter flick. And the tagline is, a fate worse than death. So, this is, for me, this wasn't a first watch, um, but it was a first watch very recently. I actually discovered it through another podcast, uh, the Blood Brothers Horror Podcast. They do um, a little segment called From the Grave or something like that, where they talk about movies that may have been forgotten or things you may not have seen. And they talked about this movie, and the way they described it, I was immediately intrigued, and it sounded like a film that I would absolutely dig. So I checked it out, actually, on YouTube, and it was everything that I had hoped for. The effects were just superb, in my opinion, and the tone is extremely grim and set to excellent music, so I really... It's totally my kind of movie so i guess we're gonna go around and i'll ask you all um if it was a first time watch and what you thought so we can start with red raven uh was this a first time watch for you red raven yeah this was a first time watch and i i really liked it i thought it was 
it was uh, really gruesome and um, it, it wasn't what I expected of this movie at all. Um, it was good. I, lo I love the music with it, the goblin music, and I just, I don't know, I loved everything about it. Awesome. Uh, Dustin, how about you? First time watch? Oh yeah, you talked about this movie off and on for the past few months, and yeah. so it was kind of like, oh yeah, we're finally going to get to see that. And uh, so I, I booted it up. Uh, it was it was discoverable on YouTube uh, for some reason. So mm -hmm. I <laughs> it's kind of funny. So I just searched for it on YouTube, and the one I found was a half hour shorter than the correct one, and it wasn't dubbed. So I was like, "What the hell is going on?" Like there oh, were no wow. subtitles. It was just all in Italian. Oh, you have to send me that right. link. Please send uh, me that link. So I, I will. Can just check I will. I, uh, I ended up finding the one that everybody else was using, and it was like, oh, okay, now it works. And what was kind of nice about that one was it had a two-hour runtime, and the last half hour was clearly from some special features thing where they were they were watching a couple scenes and like talking with uh, one of the actresses. Uh, oh, and that was kind of interesting. But uh, yeah, it was a first-time watch. Uh, I am not as familiar with D'Amato's work. Besides, I saw Anthropophagus. Or whatever. Yep. The, uh, also known as the Grim Reaper. It was weird, and this was this was also weird. Uh, I mean, I thought it was fine. It seemed, it felt almost like a standard kind of Italian movie to me. Just bizarre, intense violence, like great music, and a plot that I couldn't really follow the first time I saw it. Aha. <laughs> uh -huh. That happens with all of all of the Italian films. I'm I'm sorry, guys. Yeah, they're <laughs> worth a second watch, definitely. Oh, they but are. Lean. Uh, oh, sorry. Oh no, it's, I was just agreeing with you. Okay. Uh, I was going to ask Dane. Is this was this a first time watch for you too? Yes, it was. Um, I I haven't seen. Um, well, it's funny because like if if anybody out there has watched the Cinema Snob then you're familiar with Joe D'Amato's work by proxy, because he's reviewed a lot of them, um, you know, like Erotic Nights of the Living Dead and things like that. Um, I mean, he's he's made a whole lot of, um, you know, a whole lot of films of very different, uh, very different kinds. So, you know, this is my first time seeing one of his films properly. And um, honestly, it... I didn't really like it. I think that the music was great because it's Goblin, but it didn't really seem like it had a whole lot more to it beyond just kind of being trashy and gruesome and things like that. And, you know, it, uh, I don't know, I, I did like some of the practical effects of, like, what they had with the, uh, I think it was cow intestines was what they actually used. But it just, I don't know. It didn't, and it was it was rather slow despite the short run time, and uh, it just I don't know it didn't really grab me in a way that I would necessarily say like this is a classic. I, I tend to try and find a deeper meaning to things if I can. Or well, this one's definitely a lot more style over substance. I think. Yeah. Well, and I guess that that's kind of my issue with a lot of the. Uh, Italian films that we've watched, and particularly the Giallo films, is and I, I keep feeling bad whenever I say that because I feel like oh I'm just, you know, not understanding the genre, and that may very well be true. I just uh, it does seem like with a lot of the ones that we've watched, 
that there is a lot of style over substance. There's a lot of, uh, you know, good good technique in spots, and particularly good music, but just, uh, well, particularly with the Giallo films, a lot of overacting and a lot of just certain things that kind of reek of phoniness to me. And this one wasn't so much that style of acting. It was just more that there wasn't a whole lot to it. And apparently... Not a lot of dialogue. I think I was intrigued by it just because it was so gruesome. I mean, they were so they were doing things that were just so gruesome that I was just more intrigued by it. Yeah, but, but and I I tend to like violence in film, but I dislike it when it's just violence for its own sake and when it's more about how gross can we be as opposed to what are we saying with this extreme violence and apparently. In terms of uh, the production, it uh, the actress. I'm reading from a quote here. Frank, the actress Fra- Frank uh, Stoppy recalled George Amato saying on set that we're quote making a movie to make people throw up. We must make them vomit. And uh, you know, so if that's your modus operandi, then I suppose in a way that they succeeded because. Uh, you know, the part that I found rather gross was sucking the guts out through the nose, you know, through the uh, the tubing in the nose, um, and, like, eating her heart and stuff like that, and it was just, like, I don't know. It, uh... One of the gore- better scenes in the movie, but we'll, we'll get into the... Well, you know, <laughs> gore hounds will probably like that sort of thing, um, but, uh, you know, nothing, nothing against that. It's just, uh, I tend to, like... I think violence is such a... If you do it right, violence can be the most impactful thing that you can put on film, but it's a tricky balance. That's fair. Um, Jake, did you actually watch this one? I did, and Uh-oh. I was thinking that I was going to be the first dissenting voice, but Dane beat me to it. Uh, <laughs> this is most definitely a first watch, and probably a last. Uh, and I will be honest, I did not I specifically did not watch certain scenes. So for the exact reason that Dane just articulated, I don't mind. I warned them. (laughs) I don't don't do core. And and, and I agree the idea that um, if you, if you, you know, I appreciate the art that can go into it, um, but, but just to make someone vomit to me, that has never, to me, been the most artistic of reasons, let's put it that way, uh, to, for making the film. Um, and it's not a sensation I enjoy. I prefer to avoid it. Uh, so I don't yeah. mind being creeped out or shocked or what have you, but I don't want to feel like I have to throw up. So as far as, rest, as, far as the rest of the film... I was shocked at how much of the film I was able to sit and watch. I was led to believe there was going to be gore start to finish. There actually was, what, maybe 10 minutes in the whole film, maybe? So, most the of it really was disgusting stuff, yeah. Most of it was actually watchable, passably entertaining, uh, but yeah. not when I would uh, rate highly or have much desire to see it again. <laughs> the only thing I really had a problem with was the the thing where, like, 
they're like eating and it's just like a close-up of that lady's mouth yes. like dripping with gunk like yes. that, um, that, scene. Yes. that was that was like the one moment where i was like oh what the hell is this oh uh, but then again perfect. i was i was somewhat distracted by a um when you get inspiration for a project you just kind of run with it and so i was i was actually carving a human face so uh what was going on a little bit less disturbing than what was actually going on in my apartment. <laughs> oh, really? Okay, Brandon. Well, let's, let's ask Brandon if this was yeah, the first time watched for him. Uh, um, uh, of course, I, I fielded it first that, uh, so that I could uh, warn Jacob about the gory parts. Sure. <laughs> I actually watched it nearly immediately. Um, I have not seen this before. And... Um, I actually also go with the consensus a lot of ways is um, sometimes the violence did feel like it was violence for violence sake, which I don't care as much for in a film, uh, though I was also surprised because when I originally was talking about this with y'all, uh, you were talking about the gore level, but... To me, the gore level was very tame as compared to a lot of other movies like, uh, yep. Uh, what was the the one? Street Trash is a good example. Um, I mean, it's not over the top; it's more realistic gore. Right. Uh, but uh, I was more from I. I actually, this was not my first film by this director, and I have an amusing anecdote story about it that I will say later on. Because it doesn't really fit about the first watch. But uh, when I looked up the director, I came up with that. So that's going to be fun. But otherwise, you know, I listened to it. And uh, I had a couple of th a couple of notes that I've jotted down for later on. But otherwise, first impression, I didn't dislike it. I thought it was interesting. There were definite flaws in it. And I felt like a lot of the violence didn't need to be as tuned up as it had as it was but otherwise you know it was it was watchable um i'd probably be willing to watch it again but probably uh self-edit the violent scenes to the point where i'm not watching them <laughs> they're going on okay that's fair um and i know david this was not a first time watch for you because you actually sent me a copy of the movie uh, yeah, um, I actually, uh, I'm a fan of uh, the Italian Paolo uh, uh, films, and I had a copy, but um, I also, um, uh, when 88 Films uh, uh, went and found the 16mm transfer, uh, for, uh, for um, they were going around on Indiegogo and letting you be able to have... Uh, like your name in the background and some uh, uh, some really cool copies of uh, uh, five films uh, uh, that they were tra transferring from the negatives. Um, this happened to be one of the films that was being transferred, and um, I was able to uh, have my name on with David Lynch in there somewhere. So, uh, so evidently he was one of the uh, contributors. <laughs> to the film and uh, uh, I was excited to see this uh, film again because I actually uh, like uh, films that are violent for violence sake for some reason and 
even though I know, I know that there's a lot of people who they can turn their heads at this kind of uh, gore, I've been kind of desensitized to most of it, so I can just kind of graze through the, uh, the, the, uh, these types of films. Um, the thing that I, uh, I was... Uh, I, I mean, the thing that I uh, kind of somewhat turned my head at when I first saw this was the dismemberment of that body and when you put it into the acid tub um you, you know you you actually saw the dismemberment and i don't think that was something that was necessarily seen as much uh, in full detail and um you know and i actually thought to myself well you know some of the actresses that were used in the italian films at the time um some of them were, um, uh, uh, shall I say, uh, uh, say skinny minis? Involved in, involved in hardcore content. Well, I actually thought the second gr uh, gr a girl, a girl that was in, uh, that he picked up, um, she was a little bit more thicker on top. Which is the Hitchhiker, she is my favorite character in the whole movie, I have to say. If somebody ever remakes this, I would love to play the Hitchhiker girl in the remake. So I'm putting that out there right now. I, w I would happily play that. She's the best role in the whole movie, in my opinion. So, I, I, I would... Anyway, that's a great segue into our plot, don't you think? Oh, yeah. Um... So, I have a few notes here about it. I'm wondering, you know, did anybody pick up on the Psycho references with this one at all? There were a handful of them, yeah. Yeah, I mean, a taxidermist, you know, that's, that's the tip-off right away. Um, uh, even though so I, I, yeah. yeah, and the, the whole, like, Oedipus complex thing yeah. with Iris and kind of, like, mommy issues going on there. A mother-like figure, and kind of was lactose intolerant, wasn't he? <laughs> that was uh, when I first watched this movie, and I was like, okay, so already we have fingernails being pulled off, and like <laughs> uh, breastfeeding. Like I'm so in on this, 100%. I love all that, like really creepy oddball shit, and the the Iris's character. If any. Well, the reason I think uh, behind uh, the fact that uh, uh, that he ripped her nails off is because she scratched him. So I think right. it was a point that uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, since you uh, since you uh, uh, took and scratched me, I'm going to take the, uh, the things uh, your claws away from you. <laughs> well, and and I have an interesting thought that I didn't pick it up the first time I watched it, but on the rewatch in preparation for this show. You know, the whole voodoo scene happens where clearly Iris has intentions with this voodoo where she goes and gets this voodoo stuff done so that she can kill Anna, so that she can have Frank to herself, whatever. I'm wondering if anybody picked up on, you know, what's up with Frank? Like, why is Frank suddenly, like, psycho? Is it, does it have something to do with this voodoo? Like, is he somehow influenced by this voodoo? Or is this just a result of his fiance's untimely death that just sends him into 
you know, being a psycho killer. And then he becomes so obsessed with Anna after she's dead, you know? Right. It's like something switched in him. He wasn't, he didn't seem like he was such a psycho before, but I'm wondering if anybody has any theories on that. If it was part of his voodoo or not. Yeah. I just thought he was always somewhat of a date. And, I mean, he, he came across as that type of guy, and the movie kept it there. Like, he's the guy who can have any girl at any time, mm-hmm. and uh, he had found the one girl that he liked and just uh, went over the edge. But he seemed like the kind of guy who solved most of his problems with women. He just got more and more violent with the uh, severity of the situation. So to me, it was just an amplification as to what he was already. Well, evidently, Iris is supposed to be like his mother, right? She's the housekeeper, like, knows him from childhood or whatever, so okay. she's been so, around for a while. It was, it was that part where they that. were, like, at that dinner party and they were, like, announced that they were going to get married, right? Or Well, that was, if you if you recall, uh, he, you know, she's encouraging him to, to get rid of Anna. Get, you know, she's dead. We can't do anything with her. Get rid of her. And he says, no, she's, I'm not getting rid of her. I, you know, you can have, you know, like he agrees to marry her. He says something about you can be the, the um, matriarch of the house or something like that. But I need but he to totally didn't want to. You could tell he, he ran off and. Yeah, he just said whatever he had to say to her to get her to let him keep her, Anna, in the house. And then, so she takes that and runs with it. And, oh, I'm getting you know, I'm getting married and I'm going to have this dinner party and tell all my old ass weird friends about it. And (laughs) as soon as he's confronted, like meet the people and let's tell them our big news. He's like, hell no. I can't crazy. I got the feeling that, um, I mean, you you know what they always say about, you know, once you've had your first, uh, uh, first lover in your uh, life, uh, your first is always the one that you remember. You know, uh, uh, I well, think they're taking that to the extreme in this case. Yeah. I think. <laughs> uh, into the afterlife, so to speak. Well, I also think the fact that he's attacked with Hermes, like that, sort of adds that creepy factor. Because I mean, you got to be a little weird, probably, to be able to do that as a hobby. But it, it's, I thought, it was a clever angle because it, it makes it more believable that he's able to suck her brains out through her nose and, you know, engage in these behaviors. He put those, like, glass eyes in her. Right, yeah, he, you know, it's all creepy stuff to us, but to him, it's what he's Just used normal. to doing. Yeah. Well, you then both had serious attention, that's for sure. <laughs> and he uh, also obviously had some other issues going on too. I mean, like that one girl that hurt her ankle and he brings her back. And it's like, there's no reason at all whatsoever she would have ever had to know about Anna. But he must have had. But some- he gets off on that, man. So while they were getting it on, uh, it was exciting to have that uh, necrophiliac moment, right? There. Right, those undertones are of necrophilia, cannibalism, you know, all of that kind of. Well, the thing that I wonder is why he had to go cover her up before he went, you know, to get the gauze. You know, why he was paranoid, you know, to go cover her up. 
You know, and then... It, it seems to me like it's a fetish behavior for him, almost. Like, he had to go in there, check on her, you know, and, and yeah. I imagine that he gets some excitement from looking at this dead body, you know, and then he goes to interact with this other woman, and it's like, he's trying to connect, he's trying to bridge that. He's doing these physical acts with this woman who's alive, but he's really thinking about his dead wife, you know, or dead fiancé. Alright, like, um, sometimes, sometimes those kinds of things, like, work weird, too, like, uh, every once in a while, like, when I get out of the shower, and I'm standing near, like, one of my pet tanks, like, if I see the lizard looking at me, I'm gonna put something, like, over the tank so the lizard's not looking at me. <laughs> like, you, you feel, it's, you can feel, like, self-conscious about weird things like that sometimes, and that's kind of what I got out of that. It's like, oh, I've got this other girl here, oh, this, my fiance's still alive in my mind, uh... Like, make sure she's not watching. Because then he uncovers her so that he can look at her. See, to me, it's predatory behavior. Uh, he covered her up, in my opinion. So that he, because he knew if she was uncovered when he took the girl into the room to kill her. Because I don't right. think that he intended on doing anything more than killing her. Uh, I believe that he knew that she would run as soon as she saw that. So his hope was to get her in there uh, and then he can uncover her after the woman is in there and she is trapped. Uh, to me, he's you know a classic predator type character. Uh, again, I, I I don't I don't consider him a good guy in any means, shape, or form. <laughs> no, I would say that's pretty accurate. <laughs> Did uh, anybody else have any thoughts on the plot before we move on to characters? Did anyone else feel like there were a lot of scenes that really dragged? Um, which, I mean, part of that, I admit, is uh, Italian cinema tends to be a little bit more meandering and slower paced, especially in that era, so I can kind of chalk it up to that, at least partially. But even with that being said, it felt like there were a lot of scenes that just dragged or just took forever to get going. Um, which, again, that's a very American thing to say. And I'm I'm used to things moving at a slower pace, but it's just, there has to be a little bit more to it to justify a slower pace. In other words, like, if you're lengthening things, and that probably means that you don't have, uh, you know, a whole lot of story there to begin uh, with. If that well, what sense. I got out of some of those lengthy scenes was there wasn't a whole lot of dialogue, and I think that's what made them feel lengthy. And I think at least my interpretation of that was uh, the intent was to create some sort of mood or feeling or, like, I, I notice a lot of scenes with Frank where he's just making a lot of facial expressions or he's just doing things, but he's not saying a whole lot. I think probably... Um, the scene with the girl hitchhiker was probably the most dialogue in the movie, like, up to that point. You know, there was just a lot of, we see Frank doing and, and having, you know, very few words. So I think some of those scenes, like, especially in the beginning, we're honestly alive in the hospital. Um, there's a lot of exchange of facial expressions between people. And, you know, maybe that is just uh, a stylistic choice. Um, and I, I feel like that's kind of Italian cinema in general, but mm-hmm. I picked up on, on a lot of mood stuff with those slow scenes, like where he's sitting in the bedroom and he's looking at the picture of his mom and then he's like looking at himself in the mirror and it's kind of hokey by today's standards. Probably not anything um, that would translate very well today, but 
I kind of picked up on the, the mood they were trying to create there. Which, and I'm, just to clarify, I am the big uh, silent movie guy, and I tend to like big, uh, you know, stretches of you know, film without dialogue, assuming that the visuals are keeping your interest in that, you know, like, here's a good example, like, for a good, I want to say at least 10 minutes of the very opening of There Will Be Blood, there's not a single line of dialogue, and it keeps your interest the entire time, because the pacing is slow and deliberate, but without, uh, with plenty, but with plenty of things happening, and also, uh, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis is able to communicate a whole lot without having to say anything. And of course, and then when he does, he has a lot to say. But, um, you know, it's just, it, it takes a lot to make something without dialogue interesting. And the Silent Masters knew that, and, you know, certain gifted people know that today, uh, if they're daring enough to do that. Um, it just, I think it's its really a matter of just making every single frame count, every sequence count, nothing extraneous, you know, nothing um, overly long, or, yeah, it's, it's, a lot of it's in the editing and the pacing, I think, and just making sure you have enough story to justify what you're showing us. I think I know what you're saying, Dame, because there was a recent film that I was watching with... Uh, my fiance last night before I switched it because it was uh, so slow and, uh, and I'll go back to it a bit later. But it was a film called A Ghost Story from two thousand. Oh, uh, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was, like everybody else is like, oh yeah, uh, fuck that movie. Yeah. There's at least twenty minutes of her sitting eating a bowl and she's doing nothing, and the uh, he's standing. Casey Affleck is standing there in a sheet with two holes, uh, holes look, uh, 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 and that's all that's being done. She's just spooning her food, uh, food into her mouth, and there's no emotion, no nothing, no action, just total blah. Yeah, well, it, uh, it was the one that I saw. The, yeah, like, I was actually, I was watching the original Carrie uh, the other night, and... There are a lot of sequences that are slow and in slow motion without dialogue, but there's also a lot going on visually. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and and people would complain that, you know, that part of the reason why there's a lot of slow mo there is to pad out what's otherwise a short story. Um, but uh, again, there's a lot of different layers of movement within the shots that are slow motion. There's there's more going on. And also the fact that they're aided by a story which has plenty of dramatic tension and all these other elements to to carry what could otherwise be something tedious. Um, so again, it's just you gotta make sure you've got something else carrying the weight of the movie in order to justify a slower pace. That's fair, and I'm probably easily entertained. Which is also fair. Um, <laughs> so let's yes, move nothing, on to the against. Yeah, not, nothing against if that's the case. You know, because um, it's perfectly acceptable to enjoy something that just entertains you, or you, you may find, uh, or someone else may find junky, but you're like, well, I liked it. You know, it's perfectly okay to do that. Well, and that's why we all talk about it, because we all got something, you know, something out of it different. So. 
Moving on to our characters, uh, we talked a lot about Frank, I think. Um, I think we could probably elaborate a little bit more on Iris. I feel like she's she's maybe the bigger villain in our story. Um, does anybody have anything to share on Iris that we haven't already talked about? That was the maid slash old yeah. lady, right? Yes. Yeah, she seemed to be kind of driving slash incentivizing like, the mayhem. I agree. Uh, she um, seemed to be almost like the... That's why I wondered, you know, with this whole voodoo spell, I kind of thought maybe there was more to it. Maybe she put some kind of a spell on him because it almost seemed like she was sort of steering the ship there, making the decisions, or at least um, motivating him to make certain decisions. Well, I think she Go ahead. I was going to say, she had tried... She obviously wanted him... You know, whether for the villa or for him or for whatever. And she obviously thought getting rid of Anna was how to go about it. That clearly blew up in her face. Uh, so if she had put a spell on him, she obviously may have been an example of being careful what you wish for, like she didn't do it right. Because if she did, I don't think the effect ended up what she expected or wanted. So, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense, because she definitely seemed to be paddling up a hill with him every time she had him do something that seemed to backfire. Um, I mean, he did go and grab Anna's corpse back from the gra uh, graveyard, bring it back, and when he, he did bring it back, it was in Iris' presence, he was a Give her the option to leave because he's got his precious Anna there, you know. <laughs> uh, well, and it was her who originally helped him get rid of that the body, or or not get rid of it, but deal with it. You know, she stepped in, and you know, with the hitchhiker, she helps him deal with all of that. So she's definitely has like a protective. Um, influence over him where she you know he could have who knows i mean he he managed to escape the cops you know who might have stopped him while he was changing his flat tire like what an inconvenient flat tire that was um but you know he seemed to get past the cops okay in that situation but you know who knows where he'd be without iris's careful planning uh, did anybody else have thoughts on any of the other minor characters at all before we move on? Well, I want to say yeah. Brandon, were um, you going to say something? Go ahead. I was going to say, the only thing I, I had thought about the uh, many of the other minor characters, it just it always struck me as odd how charismatic this person apparently is. I mean, especially with the jogger. I mean, there are two things that bother me. I felt like uh, a lot of the times the women who weren't the main characters were just put in there to show some gore and death. Yeah, uh, probably. They didn't get here randomly. I mean, the jogger comes in there, he puts the foot and, and again, maybe this is a European thing. I'm not, uh, 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 I'm not an expert on this, but, you know, it just seems rather odd that it goes directly from I just met you, creepy guy, to, all right, let's go. 
Well, and I think he's designed as a character to be, you know, really like a pretty boy. I mean, he's no Joe Spinell and maniac, you know, but he's able to to at least get these women to go home with him because he's a looker. You know, I think that's kind of the the idea that we're supposed to take. But I think also in the English overdubbing. I am sure that some of the nuance in his interaction is probably lost. Uh, the hitchhiker only bothered me because she just suddenly appeared in his car. Yeah, uh, which, you're not going to pick me up, I'll just <laughs> hop in. Which, you know, so I didn't feel sorry for the hitchhiker at all because, you know, I'm sorry, but you just jump in a stranger's car. That's a bad, uh, that's a bad decision. Uh, I but, love her. Uh, actually, was uh, if, I, if somebody had done that to me, I would be creeped the heck out by the hitchhiker. It's like, what do you? Well, she said she was traveling around, and that was the best way to see the country was to be a hitchhiker. Right. It wasn't the her first rodeo, that's for sure. So and she had that that good stuff to share. She didn't partake in any, but. Well, and, and you never know. She might have had something going on in the background. Who knows? She might have had her own, like, uh, uh, trail of bodies left. Yeah, out. let's do a spinoff. Somebody make a spinoff. I'll star in that, too. I can't totally remember that character. <laughs> a a spinoff of the Hitchhike person? Yes. Yeah. Her backstory, her origin story. Earlier that day. <laughs> right. <laughs> You know what's actually kind of funny? As I was looking at her uh, facially, she kind of reminded me of uh, Catherine Martin, the main uh, victim in Silence of the Lambs, a little bit. I was thinking that! Or like Baby from Dirty Dancing, but like a fatter version. Yeah, well, they, her name? they do. Jennifer Grey? Um, oh, I forget her character's name, but yeah, the... They have a similar, well, particularly her and um, and uh, Catherine Martin. They have similar faces, similar hair. They're you know uh, they weigh Bobby. more than yeah. say Jennifer Grey does. Um, but yeah, that that did get me thinking about that. And obviously, uh, you know, this film came first. But uh, thought that was kind of interesting. And and they both get picked up by crazy men and get killed and well actually no Captain Martin doesn't get killed but you know picked up by crazy men and all that stuff well, one scene I will very quickly one scene that I will commend the film for which I thought was actually um, pretty suspenseful was when the uh, dead woman's arm is poking through the um, the window of the van yeah. it looks like it's going to brush the sleeping hitchhiker and he has to tuck it back like I thought that was that was actually a pretty good um, suspenseful scene. I could have imagined like a later period Hitchcock doing something like that. Yeah, I agree with you on that one, definitely. And I do have to say about the Hitchhiker, I personally thought she had the best naked scene. I mean, it was a shame she was already dead, but um, her naked scene, like her getting chopped up, like her boobs are jiggling all over the place. I mean, what more would you want there? That was beautiful. <laughs> Perfect. Does anyone else importantly know that the housekeeper was just tossing pieces into the acid bag? Yeah, right? Like, no splashback or anything? Yeah. <laughs> it was I very good. It was all good. <laughs> I, 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 tend, I tend not to think about the 
anatomy of corpses uh, too too terribly much. Uh, but you know, I can. I think that she perhaps you might say had more personality in how she was uh, dismembered. Even though I will say that yeah. hose is in the. Uh, up your nose with a rubber hose, quite literally. Tales of entrails. Yeah, I would. I would say that that kind of uh, takes the cake in terms of personality. Totally. Did anybody else want to say anything more about the characters before we move on? Because this is a perfect time to segue into the special effects. I always mm. got kind of confused as to who was who. Um, but that's, that's kind of a normal thing with any of, like, these older movies. Like, they'll say the character's name once, like, really quickly, like, offhandedly. And then I'll never know, you know, people will be referring to them by name and I'll be like, wait, who? <laughs> and then I'll be like, oh, the guy with the hair. It's like, oh, okay. Just, just yeah. load up the IMDB page while you're watching the movie and check back in on some of those <laughs> important details. <laughs> the, creepy, the creepy pretty boy, the creepy housekeeper... The hitchhiker, the jogger, the guy who's constantly trespassing. The yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, we didn't even at all talk about the investigator guy, but um, I don't know that he adds a whole lot other than just... Um, he doesn't even do anything? Like, he sees a body and then, like, I don't remember what happened to him after that. He figured some shit out. I mean, he was just... I think he was, like, the threat to, like, you know, all the, they're going to get caught doing this shit. Well, to, to, so, to further the, uh, the psycho connection, he's kind of the Arbogast mm -hmm. of the movie. Right. right. Yes, that, plot, that plot thread went nowhere, though. That was the sad thing. Yeah. <laughs> I felt like it was what kind I, of... Other than the throwback to Psycho, it was kind of a pointless... Uh, it was, well, you have to have some challenge of some sort, I think, and I think that was the presented challenge, because, I mean, if it was just they are able to kill people with no um, recourse or no, like, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, no, I guess no they... Threat. Yeah, there's well, no threat there. Which, you know, it's funny, actually, on that same level. I kind of felt that way about uh, Willem Dafoe's character in uh, American Psycho. Like, when he first appears... It's Willem Dafoe, and you're like, oh, man, you got these two great actors together, and he's going to be like the Van Helsing to Patrick Bateman's Dracula. It's like they're going to be like a chess game with each other, and that doesn't really happen. He's just kind of there a little bit, and that's kind of it, which is really too bad, because that's, I know, and that's, now granted, there's plenty of other sources of conflict in that story, and it's much more of a satirical piece than it is. Uh, a conventional horror film in terms of, you know, bad guy protagonist and law enforcement antagonist, all that stuff. There's there's other stuff going on to make it work, but I do remember feeling a little disappointed that this great actor, one of my, possibly my favorite living actor, you know, was vastly underutilized in the story when you just, you wish that it could have evolved into this cat and mouse game between the two of them. What are you talking about, American Psycho? Yeah, and... Well, you know, yeah. the whole reason that was in there, right? It was to show that, I mean, people are noticing that, they're noticing that the people he kills are disappearing, but... Yeah, exactly. It ties into the theme of, like, nobody really cares or can even tell each other people, like, apart from other people. That's right. Like, they, and each, I, time, I each, exactly time Defoe, each time Defoe appears, um, they told him to play it a different way each time. 
like, to play it, in each different scene, he plays it as either, you know, he, he knows Bateman killed Jared Leto, whose name I totally fucking forgot, um, he doesn't know that Bateman killed Jared Leto, or he's unsure, like, they had him change it, like, every time, so, that entire relationship in American Psycho is just part of the plot of, like, anonymity and indifference, so that's, for, for that purpose, like, it's perfect, uh, and it's also to kind of, it's also to subvert, like, the expectations that people have for that, so it's kind of a good feeling. I got a message saying he's disconnected. Uh, Where'd he go? I'm sorry, I appear to have gotten disconnected. For whatever reason. <laughs> I logic him right out of the... I argued him right out of the call. <laughs> I guess so, but yeah, I, I got why he was there, but you see what I'm trying, I was trying to get at, like, you want... You were wrong! <laughs> a hope, you would like for there to be a sufficient uh, antagonist who's a law enforcement to try and counter the, uh, the bad guy main character, but that doesn't always happen. Especially point. in the Italian horror movies. Yeah. Well, well <laughs> case, case in point, Arbor Gaston, Psycho, Willem Dafoe, and... Well, Dark my and point, was, and then point just was, you characters. don't need it, depending on the story you're trying to tell. Yeah, it just, it really depends. Not, not every, uh, not every, you know, th there's not always the uh, Dracula, Van Helsing, or Michael Myers and Dr. Limus dynamic. That doesn't always have to be there. What I wanted to say before we went on to the uh, uh, special effects is uh, when I looked into the history of, you know, uh, what titles of this film were released in other uh, different countries, I found it interesting that uh, in Italy in 1987, uh, it was re-released as In Quella Casa Buio Omega as an attempt to pass it off as part of the Evil Dead uh uh, American uh, 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 films, Evil Dead One and Two. Yep. In uh, 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 which were released as hell of a stretch. Wow. And it is. I actually have that in my in my notes at the end for additional items of note. I actually wrote that down in here. In Spain, the film was marketed as being a sequel to the House series, as House Six Altera. <laughs> was. Uh, it was marketed as part of the zombie uh, series, uh, 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 which is part of the Fuji franchise. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you gotta love how, like, it is Italian, uh, you gotta love how a lot of Italian uh, exploitation films just run rampant with becoming unofficial sequels or retitling themselves a million times to try and ca you know, cash in on this thing and this thing. Jaws by Cruel Jaws. Exactly. How many unofficial quote sequels were there with that one? It's like 20, 20 to 30, something like that. It's ridiculous. Oh, little piece of useless information related to Django. Franco Nero actually starred in The Third Eye, which... Apparently, Boyo Omega is a remake of The Third Eye. So, a little piece of trivia for you there. Well, yeah. Okay. Actually, I had one point on the slowness, just real quick. Oh, sure. Um, 
I just thought about it really because um, I saw another film uh, from a similar time period uh, called Beyond the Door, which has a lot of odd uh, credited sequels, uh, but that one also had that pacing issue, non-issue, depending on what it was. I really do feel like that's also an aspect of the time. In the 70s, there was that idea of pacing, and then add on top of it, it's an Italian film. Uh, it's just an artistry to take your time. I mean, that's just in the culture, <laughs> in general. I think that probably does hold true, both high and low quality. I've seen a fair bit of Italian films, and I know, Brandon, you have that Fellini rule that you've instituted. I'm sure some of it... <laughs> The, um, but also uh, Paolo Santino, you know, so a lot of them are very languid films. Like they, even though when they're good, they're, they're really good. You know, they can be very entertaining despite the pacing. But um, they do tend to kind of meander a little <laughs> from what I've seen. Uh, yeah. Well, all right. Are we ready for special effects now, guys? Probably. Jump into that because, I mean, that's probably my favorite aspects of the film are the special effects. Um, and that, like was mentioned before, not because it's like way over the top, but because it was so realistic looking. How do you die from getting your nails pulled? Oh, uh, that's not how she died. If you were paying attention, he actually suffocated her with like some dirty pair of underwear or something like that. Well, she appeared to like kind of go limp after the la after he finished, and I was like, "Oh." Okay. No, he 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 then um got on top of her and stuffed that cloth in her mouth and suffocated her. Well, you know what's you know what's interesting? A little bit of medical trivia there. Actually, strangling a person takes much more force and takes longer than is shown. In movies, like in movies, it takes a few seconds. In real life, it takes like I think at least five minutes, or, or something like that. I want to say thirteen. Something like that, but it's like it. It. Or, it the point is, it takes eight. quite a long time because you have to cut off someone's air supply in a sustained fashion, and assuming that they're not also thrashing around and you know, potentially loosening one's grip or, or whatever, and you know, it just, it takes several minutes for oxygen to, like, leave someone's brain long enough for them to die and things like that, so it's like... Unless you put a bag over their head. Yeah, but even, I mean, that, I'm sure, probably helps, but it's like, you know, it just, it, the point is that it, uh, it takes longer than movies typically show um, it, as far as, like, traditional strangulation. Well, we may just have to suspend our belief in several. I think oh, yeah. several yeah, of the kills we yeah, have well, to do like that. How, in it's like how uh, cars in movies, one single bullet will make them blow up always. Yes. Even right. though in real life, it's actually quite difficult for a car to blow up, luckily. It is. Yes. That's, like, that's one of the few things I really liked about Last Action Hero when he's. Expecting the car to blow up, and then it's like, why is it blowing up? I shot it. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, what do you guys think of the way the gore was shot? 
in in this movie. Um, well, for those of you who watched it, <laughs> a lot of it, a lot of it was pretty convincing. Like most of the guard was like, eh. And long uh, shots. I mean, they stayed on it for a while. Yeah, they did. <laughs> so I, I did like the, the skin. I did like the um, well, the sound effects that they used for. <laughs> this is gonna sound awful, but uh, well, well, the sound sound effects that they used for like disemboweling and all that. But the one that actually did kind of crack me up a little bit was the. Uh, well, the no, the gut, the brains, or whatever, the blood through the nose, the hose in the nose, uh, when the blood and goop went into the receptacle, it honestly sounded like someone was on the toilet. Totally, <laughs> it really did. But, but the ship. Yeah, but, but then again, you know, it's that same. You know, it's it's kind of chunky fluid in a narrow space, so it's gonna well, probably such- sound like that. It's yeah. such a visceral scene, and all of, I mean, to imagine it, to really be um, putting yourself there, that's why the scene following with, um, or follow, I'm sorry, the scene that follows the um, the bathtub scene where they're eating the nasty, gu- or she's eating the nasty goulash or whatever, that scene is only af- as effective as it is because of the disgustingness before it yeah, that sort of sets you up for it. Yeah, and I feel I, like um, they do was, that well on this one. I was actually watching this movie uh, with Jill for like the first thirty minutes, and uh, she eventually got to the point where she was just too grossed out, and she has kind of a sensitive stomach anyway. So I was like, "Yeah, probably not a good idea to keep going with this one." But, yeah, it, um, it, it'll do that to you. Uh, that was the idea, right? Yeah, apparently, apparently so. But yeah, I I did like for the sake of. Realism, I like the, I think they say cow intestines that were used. Cow um, intestines, pig skin, and a sheep's heart. Yeah, which uh, kind of reminded me of how in uh, uh, Racerhead, which we watched, he had the um, the cow fetus that was used as the baby. You know, so it's like you can use real animal parts um, for effectiveness and make it work. And obviously, you just, I'm sure, just go to a slaughterhouse and they can probably take care of it for you. In terms of acquiring that stuff, not exactly a specialty, you know, item. Well, and what I, lo- what I noticed and picked up on that I don't know that I've ever seen done in any other movies that I've seen is where you actually see him cutting out parts of her insides you know where it's like there's separating of membranes and like cutting through things and that i mean that must have been a section of a dead animal that you know where it's not all the separate parts just like oh we got some intestines here and a liver here we'll just throw it all in there it actually looked like it, there was connective tissue and stuff. And to me, I, I I thought that was awesome. Like, I don't think I've ever seen it like that. I mean, truly gross. <laughs> that of her out, too, you know. Uh, no, uh, for, uh, besides the liver and intestines. So it kind of looked uh, real to me, uh, just a little bit. Even yeah. though I was joking off to the side, well, here's the laffy t- uh, t- uh, taffy version of intestines. <laughs> I mean, I've never gutted a human being before, so I don't know what it really looks like. But I can imagine it, it was. I mean, it's got to be. I, I, have, 
I've had most autopsies before, so uh, most. Uh, it depends on how like fresh the thing is. Like I've done dissections on animals before for labs, and it's not it's not like a ultra nasty bloody thing like a lot of people think it is. I mean, yeah, there's fluid, but it's a surprisingly closed system. It's kind of hard to describe. I, um, I, I remember dissecting. Yeah, um, I actually a little bit of uh, trivia too here. Um, I actually took a taxidermy class when I was in seventh grade, and so I'm familiar with some of the things that you do for taxidermy. And um, yeah, I've I've had to skin a squirrel before, so I think a lot of that stuff. You know, even if you have a little bit of knowledge about it, you know a little bit. Your brain sort of fills in the blanks for the rest yeah. of it. Well, and apparently, um, for the well, first of all, um, human humans and pigs biologically are not so different in terms of the fact that we're the only animals that sweat, and you know they ha they have you know their own kind of skin and. Uh, is similar to humans, they use it in, like, accident testing and stuff like that. Tattoo practice. That's right, and also, apparently, I think with, apparently, I think, with some people who have actually tasted human flesh, they say it does taste a bit like pork, apparently. Delicious. That's why I put a lot of chorizo into my chili. And I do like... Oh, prime meat! I do like my pork, so... It's in the meat. I've got an eye for quality meat. Sorry, I'm already drunk. The one that was sent, there was an interview with somebody in the film at the end. I don't know if anybody else sat there and listened to the whole thing. I had to turn off the visuals because I just kept replaying all the gory parts over and over again. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I mentioned that. Yeah, it it went into that like interview, and it was actually pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was interesting that there was a rumor at the time that they were using real dead bodies uh, in relation to that uh, to that particular shoot. Thing. Uh, one of those, like, well, you know, with this forbidden Easter egg, they actually used real dead bodies, which of course they didn't. But it's just the show that the stuff was uh, that realistic looking that people actually could look at that and then believe that rumor. That, that's a testament to the special effects. Definitely. I would agree. There's a lot of ways that are like that, though, where people thought they used, you know, they really killed people and. <laughs> Oh, yeah, they had to go to court for cannibal apocalypse or Holocaust. Cannibal Holocaust, or... yeah. 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 I said I was drunk. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, does anybody have anything else to add on the special effects before we move on? Uh, no, they were they were pretty convincing for the most part. Like most of the time with this Italian stuff from the, that era, you get kind of like a a bit of like a goofy vibe to some of it. Like some of it you can tell is kind of fake. Most of the stuff I saw on this was pretty convincing, so I'd say this had above average. Blood, too. What? Better blood than better blood than like say you know like a not an Italian movie, but um, Dawn of the Dead. Like the blood in Dawn of the Dead doesn't look 
nearly as good as the blood in this movie and they're right around the same time period that they both came out so um i was impressed with the effects all around for the time period especially Dawn of the Dead is its own kind of, like, unique thing, though. Like, I, I almost... I, I feel like some of the effects in Dawn of the Dead, like, not being... Being, like, their own kind of, like, style of things, I feel like that was intentional. It's like the blood I, being, I like, the blood surreal. I should have I don't know. It was... It, it, it's probably... Um, I have the really expensive Blu-ray version of it that came out a few years ago, and I also have that Ultimate Collector, like, four-disc DVD thing that I haven't watched yet, so it's probably somewhere in there. Because yeah, we have got the Japanese one that I think has a bunch of extras on it, so I feel like into that. There's a lot of stuff available for that movie, like, uh... It's like Halloween, like, some people, the people that are into it are really, really into it to the point where it's like, what's going on? So I'm sure somebody knows the answer. Well, we'll have to make that our homework. Uh, speaking, and speaking of Dawn of the Dead, um, which was scored by Goblin, this film was also a Goblin score, uh, which I personally loved and actually started listening to the score before I watched the movie because I had, you know, I had the ability to listen to the music first and I fell in love with the music right away. So um, I'm curious to hear what you all thought about it. The music is, the music's fucking great. Like, yeah, I love the music. There's really no, uh, there's not a whole lot more to it. I mean, it's, it's like the standard, it's like the standard of quality that Goblin is known for. Um, I mean, it sounds, it sounds a lot like all the other stuff that they did. Like, you can tell that it's Goblin. Um, like, it's not quite stuck in my head yet, but I can kind of hear oh it. Oh my god, it's stuck in my head all the time. But I've literally been listening to the entire soundtrack on a loop for, like, a month straight. It's kind of, I'm a little obsessed. It's kind of weird. Well, I have the, I have the... I have the main theme for Tenebrae, like, stuck in my head most of the time. Yeah, same. Well, my, uh, the Profondo Rosso theme is my alarm that I wake up to in the morning. So, it sort of is always, there's always some goblin ringing in my ears. There's goblin, <laughs> goblins all over the place. I think there are even a couple of, like, random LPs out at Exclusive Company right now. Ooh, <sighs> Yeah, yeah, I've got, I've got it's a, always tempting. I have a horror playlist on Spotify that is very heavy with Goblin and you know Claudio Simonetti and all of it. John Carpenter's thrown in there too. I like all that crazy weird shit. Well, I did like the music because I like Goblin, but I did. I mean, I, I've liked other scores of theirs more, namely Suspiria, but it still was probably the best part of the movie. Oh, you have to see it. Well, and they're remaking it, so definitely see it before the remake comes out. Oh, so the Suspiria remake? Yeah. No, they got they got in some trouble because um, a few of the shot a few of the shots were based on like some something about like feminist art paintings or whatever, and they're they got in like trouble. Like they might have to remove some scenes from it. Really? What does that mean? Yeah. What does that mean? Feminist art paintings. 
um, like some of the art was, it's like a, it's like a bloody outline, like on a wall was one of them, or it's another one where it's like some girl like lying on a table, like mm. as if she's being like tied down and like assaulted. Uh, I, I read I'm it not... and it didn't really make sense. It was weird. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm a little trying to follow that logic because. Well, number one, uh, well, they, the they showed a picture of the shot from Suspiria, and they showed a picture of, like, the art piece, and it was like, okay, that's really, really similar. Um, well, it's, it's just more the, uh, so, so you're, in other words, it was confirmed that it was a fight with like, art, art piece it's specifically? Like, it's, like, it's art piece, they were, like, art pieces with a specific message. Um, okay. and they were, like, a visual inspiration for a lot of the themes of the movie, which made sense at, uh, I wish I remembered more details. Yeah, like, we're talking, like, I'm, we're talking, like, real, like, good feminism, not, like, insane internet feminism. I'm trying to, I'm trying to just follow the whole thing, because it sounds a little vague right now, but I'm sure... My memory of it is frankly I... pretty, my fr memory of it is frankly pretty vague. Well, well I'm report back next week. <laughs> okay, well, what, what's, what's coming, what's coming to mind at the present moment is like the cat lady in a clockwork orange. That's where my brain's going with it, but that may not be, you know, I it actually is. don't even remember what you're talking about. Uh, so you've, you've seen that movie, right? Yeah, I, you mean the lady that gets like clubbed to death with the dick? Yes, and <laughs> okay. the, paintings that, the paintings that are on her wall, I mean, that's more what came to my mind, but... Um, from the article I read, that sounds relatively close enough-ish. I don't know. Like, on the other hand, all the early reviews for Suspiria said it was unbelievably great, so... Um... See it. Just, just see it. See both of them. I'm interested. Yeah. Well, definitely see the first one, you know, first. That's... That's a must-see, in my opinion. Yeah. Um... Like, especially if you can somehow get your hands on, like, the Synapse, um, release from earlier this year. Which is glorious. Oh, <laughs> I need to get it in my collection. I mean, it is a classic. I know that much. So it, it's uh, it's on my it's on my radar. Uh, well, by it. the by the Synapse one, they they put out they did a reissue where it's like a normal case. It's got really nice art. It's not as nice as the Steelbook, but it's still pretty nice. Uh, the Steelbook is like a hundred bucks or something insane now. I kind of wish I'd bought two. I think this is the synapse art the Joel Robinson art. Um, is that the one where it's like a stained glass window? That's no, that's art. the steelbook art. I'm talking about just the regular synapse Blu-ray. It looks kind of like a shut factory cover where it's um, like the main girl and it's just like a bunch of like the imagery like around. Knife in her hand. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. the one I. Yeah, that's, that's the, the one Joel I see. Robinson. Yeah, I have I have his print on my bedroom wall. For that, because really we ended nice up with print. the book. It is, and right. he's he's a very talented artist. And I love all his work. Anyways, his um, Chainsaw Massacre two print is amazing. I have it on a T shirt, and then I had Bill Mosley and um, Caroline Williams and Bill Johnson sign it. What's um, what is that particular art print? It's got like the it's got all the characters sort of in a collage on the front and then 
I think it says Texas Chainsaw Massacre to an orange, I want to say. Like, right up top. If you go to Joel Robinson's website or Facebook page, I'm pretty sure he's got the Is that the one on the, Is that the one on the Arrow release? <sighs> Maybe. I can't remember what... Which like, ones it's like are... Tan and, it's like tan and red, and it's just like... There's a stripe of all the characters drawn in it with the with the name of the movie. Mm, yeah, it's like more like, no, it's more like a collage. It's more a okay. uh, colorful collage. Look up his, his page and you'll see it. He still okay. has t-shirts available, that one. Ryan actually has the t-shirt version of that. Now, back to the music on the essence. Yeah, sorry everybody. This this yeah, tangent. This tangent brought to you by Sierra Nevada <laughs> Narwhal Imperial Stout. Yeah, pretty good. Go buy it. To me, uh, I was looking forward to the music itself uh, a lot uh, because uh, it, it had been spoken up so much. But I think I'd gotten the, uh, the, wrong, uh, the wrong idea in my head as to what I was hearing, uh, going to hear when I uh, listened to it. So I'm probably going to have to listen to it again because I had a hard time distinguishing it from a lot of other horror films at the time. Mm-hmm. That just a uh, slight uh, uh, accentuation of what's going on. So... I feel like I need to listen to it more just uh, just to be able to get what, what y'all are seeing in it. I would encourage you to listen to the soundtrack without the movie. Like, just, you can find it on YouTube pretty easily. If you just type in Blue Omega, it'll come up. Um, listen to the soundtrack and just sort of feel the music because I think um, even with the the slight sound effects in the movie, it kind of, it tends to drown out some of it. Like, I've listened, obviously, in great detail with um, earbuds in and, you know, stereo sound, and you pick up so much more. I mean, their music is so multi-layered, and I think a lot of that is lost um, just listening to it in the film. So I would encourage to just check out the, the soundtrack on its own. Okay. Uh, anybody else want to talk about anything with the music before we move on to our favorite stuff? <laughs> no. no. Alright, so um, as far as favorites, it's really hard for me to pick a favorite scene. Or I already mentioned that the Hitchhiker was my favorite character. Um, but in terms of scenes, it's super tough. Like the fingernail pulling scene, the embalming scene, the bathtub scene. Um, oh, something we hadn't talked about is when they put the the runner into the oven, and how as she's as she's burning up, her body's sort of like twisting and contorting and stuff. And I thought that was really gross and also awesome. <laughs> So I definitely like that. Um, what did you all like? What was your favorite stuff? Mine was the bathtub, where they're just kind of like nonchalantly just like tossing parts into the tub. Um, that may have been colored by um, for my other for my other podcast, uh, Pop Culture Weekly. We did an interview with Hart Fisher, who was I guess famous for some Jeffrey Dahmer comic. And so I did a lot of reading about up on Jeffrey Dahmer, and maybe that was that was why it was kind of the most interesting part of the movie to me because that was sort of like stuff he act that actually happened like around here. Yeah, it was like yeah. Uh, well, he did he did do that kind of stuff. He um, although with him he uh, ate 
the bodies or preserved parts of them in the, uh, the fridge. And uh, his neighbors remarked how he never bought. Well, he never bought groceries, and yet the smell was rancid from his apartment. And it smelled like chitlins, apparently, which is pig intestines again. Uh, oh, I didn't. You know, I didn't know that food. part. Uh, <laughs> keeping up with the, you know, the pig theme again. Um, but, uh, yeah, apparently. So yeah, there's there's definitely real life uh, precedents for such things, unfortunately. Side note to Jeffrey Dahmer stuff. I think as a Milwaukee-based podcast, we ought to do some Jeffrey Dahmer film at some point that we can talk about because I think um, we could probably we. Those of us who grew up here in Milwaukee probably have some interesting uh, anecdotal stories about uh, Jeffrey Dahmer and what was going on in our life at the time. Um, so, let's, I don't know, we'll mark that in the notes section for a future episode. Well, I mean, I personally, I personally don't want to necessarily see anything that, like, glorifies him, because it's, uh, it's kind of weird how I feel about it, because, I mean, I like this stuff a lot when it's, like, fiction, but when it starts to cross into reality, like, it just feels... Well, oh, yeah, that's, you know what I mean? That's, well, but that's why I'm kind of the, I mean, I like fictional work, obviously, but... I love studying serial killers because the only way to know about the true dark aspects of human nature is to learn about those that exercise them on a regular basis because I firmly believe all of us have the capacity to do tremendous good or tremendous evil depending on our circumstances of birth and our, you know, on our own choices, um, but and so it's it's really important to uh, be able to study the behavior of those who give in to their darkest urges, or who have particularly abnormal fixations, so that for if for no other reason that we can better purge ourselves of any darkness in our own souls, and hopefully be able to recognize any kind of signs in children and be able to get them help early. And that's that's one thing that serial killer documentaries never ever talk about. And that's really sad because I would hope that a lot of this stuff, if we're educated enough about it, people can catch warning signs and hopefully get children treatment early. I would hope so. That sounded very... Uh highfalutin, I think, is the best term I know for that. What's that? Hi, hi, what'd you say, highfalutin? Academic, for the sake of academic. Oh, okay. I actually look at it in the middle. Like, I, I would not want to watch a serial killer film that glorifies the serial killer, obviously. Mm -hmm. I, I do agree with that. That That's just uh, way too much. Um, but at the same time, I do find it fascinating to look at stories about them that I want to show them for who they are. Uh, you know, if they are truly monsters and they are shown as what they are, then I have no issue with watching the film because it it actually does um, it actually does give you an accurate picture as to what's going on. Some of them are scarier than anything else because they are real and let you know that that could 
happen anywhere. <laughs> we'll have to do some research on... I know there's a few Dahmer films out there. I've not seen any of them, uh, aside from maybe one documentary that I stumbled across on, like, Netflix or Amazon. Um, but we'll have to look into it and see what would be a worthwhile watch for us that obviously isn't glorifying, but is, you know, maybe know. just educational. There's, there's, a couple, there's, a couple, there's a couple of them, actually. There's uh, the one that came out recently, My Friend Dahmer, which I... I do want to see that. I wanted to see that one, and then there was another one called Dahmer, it's which had... Uh, well, there was one that had, was called Dahmer, and it had um, a young Jeremy Renner in it, and that's why... Um, uh, Catherine Bigelow ch cast him in The Hurt Locker because she'd seen him in that film. And, um, you know, so there's plenty of fiction ones. There's also um, plenty of documentaries. There's one in particular that I remembered watching that I really liked. It's uh, just a good educational piece. Um, you know, there's a lot of good documentaries out there if you know where to look. Um, but again, that's, I, I highly emphasize education above all when it comes to this kind of stuff because you know it, it just it's I'm not trying to be um, academic or uh, over academic or uh, uh, whatever you want to say like uh, bombastic or you know uh, whatever I mean, pedantic is the word I'm looking for you know I'm, I'm really sincere when I say you know the more that we can look at early warning signs of psychopathy, sociopathy, you know, things like that, then hopefully the more that people can get the treatment they need. Oh, yeah. Yeah, whatever, whatever helps you know, get help, right? Yeah, I mean, the more that people get the help they need, the better. Most of it is with the incorrect term. I, shoot, I've worked with, uh, I've worked with individuals in the past who have definitely killed people, so I understand that. <laughs> It's, well, uh, you know how you know how obviously the the problems that they faced early in their life were very uh, numerous and debilitating, such that you know when they've gone that far down the the rabbit hole, it's very very hard to get back. Well, it's rare to ever see somebody that you look at and they say they're born evil or. Yeah, it's not like your your Michael Myers situation, uh, where of course, unless you're talking Rob Zombie's one, which they they make that argument that he's well, that's no Rob Zombie's trying to the original one uh, basically was born evil. <laughs> yeah, he's he's more like a force of nature rather than a person, which I I tend to be of the belief that uh, monsters are made, not born. You know, I, I t unless you're talking about, like, some kind of genetic mental illness, which isn't necessarily the same thing. But, you know, it, uh... And, interestingly enough, as far as psychopathy versus sociopathy, sociopaths are made, whereas psychopaths are born. But not all psychopaths are murderous. You know, there are plenty of them that are just... You know, they, they lack empathy or, or whatever, but they don't kill, you know. So that's, that's it's a different, it's a different, uh, it's a very different thing than being a killer. And there are plenty of people who have killed who don't match that profile either, so. Actually, I had a question, Jacob, uh, mm -hmm. for you, because 
out of all of us, I was, uh, before I came in there, I was more skeptical about, about you being able to get through this movie than anyone until I saw it, and I thought we could get through this. But uh, did you have a favorite scene? I know for me it was really hard to find one uh, in general because I don't like the uh, gory scenes, so it's hard for me to point to any of those. There were there were a few particular scenes that I would say I really liked. I did find some gallows humor in them just throwing the pieces into the acid. Um, and there were a couple other things. But probably the main thing that appealed to me, if anything, was kind of, I was actually thinking about bringing this as a way to bring back the conversation to the point at hand. Um, but the idea of the main character as a subject, a topic of how mental uh, issues could be a product of, um, you know, as, as Dan was saying, kind of, they weren't, boy, he wasn't born that way. I mean, you look at it like his parents died when he was young. He's been raised by this controlling woman who has a very unhealthy interest in him. Uh, he is aloof, partly because he's rich and partly because he got into taxidermy, which probably didn't give him a whole lot of friends. Um, you know, he's got all these things piling up bit by bit by bit. And yeah, maybe there was a little bit of a voodoo spell thrown in or something. He may have had this position towards being a twisted, twisted individual, but there was a lot there to push him towards that edge. And I do think the movie had a few interesting things to say about mental depravity. Uh, it's just, they didn't really have any one character to latch on to as someone I wanted to root for. And that, you know, when you got someone to root for, that helps a lot. And, uh, you know, especially, um, you know, we've, we've had some other stuff cited through the course of this discussion, like Dan earlier was talking about uh, There'll Be Blood. I've made the point uh, a couple of times that uh, P.T. Anderson seems obsessed with mental depravity. Most of his characters suffer from it in some shape or form. Um, and those movies often try my patience because it's hard to find one to latch on to. Uh, so that, for me, can be a big thing of having a character to root for, even if they are depraved, if they've got like something that you like. This guy just... Uh, not quite. Which, Almost. You know, it's, it, it is funny that you say that, though, because I would make the argument that there are a lot of great movies out there that, you know, don't necessarily have a character to root for in the traditional sense of that term. Uh, it's more so like a, a, good, a good person who um, summed it up really well was John Travolta in... Um, his inside the actor studio appearance where he said i don't think that you have to like a character always you just have to enjoy watching him you know, that there was there are certain characters that you know he reads the script he's like oh i hate this character but i enjoy watching him you know don't like what he does but i enjoy watching him and um i think that's really what it comes down to is is this character engaging is what what am i learning from this about humanity or about myself or about others through this character's actions, you know, and and I think the best uh, films tend to be the ones where your sympathies change 
over time that they tend to flip flop back and forth based on a character's actions or inactions, mm-hmm. and that's uh, that's kind of what I tend to watch films for. I don't necessarily need a character to root for in the that kind of traditional sense. It's just more about um, you know how characters interact with each other and mm-hmm. how a master storyteller can make your um, you know, your sympathies flip constantly throughout the story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I actually did have a favorite scene myself, which was uh, at the end, where um, oh, I about that. That was awesome. Where the yeah, where she pops up out of the the coffin and she's alive. Yeah, just that, just that scene where it's almost got a ghostly, otherworldly element to it. Which me, I'm I'm more about supernatural horror than it is than I am about gory horror. So I thought that that in itself was haunting, oh, even the yeah. but also the fact that it was uh, that there was sort of a warning of get out, uh, leave this place before you become another victim. That was just yeah. That's an interesting scene in general. I was wondering, uh, it didn't come up when we were talking about the plot, but I wondered if you guys picked up on it, um, because I had listened to uh, some other people discussing the film, and they missed what I thought was kind of obvious, that you know when, when uh, the sister is waiting to see Frank, and she's in the room, the lights go out, and it's, oh, you know, Elena, don't don't come here, it was a mistake to come here. I thought, that's Iris doing that. She's trying to scare her, and freak her out, and so that's why she put Anna's body in the chair, so that when Iris would come out, she'd be, or when um, Elena would come out and see that, she would be freaked out, and Iris could kill her. That was my take on that. And, and some yeah. people have thought like that it was a, really a ghost, and, and it's like, oh, this doesn't make sense. Why would there be a ghost all of a sudden? It's like, well, wasn't that Iris doing that? Did everybody else catch that? Well, I thought it was Iris doing it, but still had a, a I thought it was like a, uh, I thought it was like a voodoo, she's still alive kind of thing. Like It seemed to go into more supernatural territory, because the voodoo thing at the beginning is very quick. And you kind of forget that there is a supernatural element involved in the, in the plot for most of the film. Up until that end, and then it's like, oh yeah, so wait, what the hell was really going on? You know, like, was she, was he just imagining, you know, that he was taking care of her and she was alive? Or was she still somehow alive, like, due to the voodoo? That was like, her it was sister. Bizarre, that was Elena. That was her sister? Yes, because oh my God, I got thrown in the oven. So... That who popped out of the coffin was Elena, the sister. They just thought it was Anna and that she was dead, or or they thought it was Elena and she was dead. Either way, wait, what? Assumed she was dead. Uh huh. So that was that was Elena. Yes, popping out of the coffin. Yes, it was. See, somebody else was confused too. Because they kind of did the whole bait and switch, right? Because when Elena comes to the house, now it's the same actress that plays both parts, so of course they're twin sisters or whatever. So Elena comes to the house to see Frank because her school term is over. She's going to go back, but she wanted to say goodbye to him. Um, 
you know, Iris puts her in a room, okay, he'll be right there. While she's in the room by herself, the lights go out, and Elena, you know, the ghost comes and tell, tells her she should get out, which is really Iris doing that, trying to freak her out. So then Elena decides to try to leave, and all the lights are out, and she's trying to go out. And I think it's, like, the front entryway or something. Yeah. Uh, and meanwhile, Frank's not there, because he took the chick from the disco home, or whatever, because she was taking a bath, and he's like, you gotta get out now. So he doesn't take you home, but you gotta leave now. So he takes her away. So Frank is gone, and it's just Iris and Elena in the house. And she's, Iris sets up Anna's dead body in a chair. And when Iris comes out of the room, she sees that. She freaks out. And Iris tries to kill her. And right then, Frank comes in, and there's, you know, a scuffle. And she stabs him in the dick, and all hell breaks <laughs> loose. And that's kind of the part where um, then you see the next thing you see him he's at the oven and he has you know put somebody in there and it's a little bit unclear if it's Anna or Elena but then we realize that it was Anna because Elena pops out of the coffin at the end Does that oh okay yeah mm -hmm. this is not a so good thing it was meant to confuse you, though, because that was the jump scare at the end. That was the whole... I mean, I saw it coming a mile away, but I still enjoyed it. But, yeah, if you didn't realize that that was Elena in the coffin, and then she comes popping up, you would have never expected that to happen. So like at the end, it teaches, it just, like, gets you. Yeah, it was, it was meant to surprise, for sure. And I really liked that as well, even though I did see it coming from a mile away. So does anyone think that Frank actually took that girl home? What? Does it, do you think Frank actually took that girl home? Oh, or just like dropped her off somewhere? Yeah, good question. <laughs> he, wasn't, he wasn't gone for too terribly long, yeah. so she must not live too far away. Hmm. He probably just dumped her off somewhere. Hmm. Good point. Does anybody else have any other favorite stuff they want to talk about that we didn't cover? Uh, aside from like that bizarre ass bathtub scene, there's not a whole lot that stands out like really explicitly in my mind. Um, if you go on and look at um, you know the T-shirts and stuff that oh, I can't remember the company name now that has that whole package. If it's Severin, I think it's Severin has the. They're a package where they're selling like a t-shirt and everything that scene with the skull popping up in the bath is like the hallmark scene for the t-shirt the it's pretty gross i love it well i would consider that part of the bathtub scene um right that, that skull really popping eyeball floating around yeah that's that like, like where it's like, like a t-shirt where they're just calmly throwing stuff into the tub and you're like, oh, okay. And then they just suddenly cut to, like, the dissolving head in the tub, and it's like, ah! Well, the, you see Frank standing there, and he's kind of like, uh, what did I just do? You know, he's got this sort of exhausted look on his face, and he's leaning his head up against the wall, and he's got his arm up, and then you can tell, he, like, some catches his attention, and he looks down, and everything's gurgling and farting and just being weird and then the skull pops up. It's super gross. And there's like one eyeball stuck in it still. Awesome. Exactly. So gross. I love it. Um, so if we move on to our additional uh, items of note, we kind of already talked about the stuff that I took notes on uh, about all the different titles 
that this movie was released under or re-released under um, in the mid-80s so that it could possibly catch on with the popularity of, like, uh, the Evil Dead franchise. Let's see, I have that it was released in the U.S. as Buried Alive in 1985, re-released in Italy in 87 as an attempt to pass it off as related to the Evil Dead franchise. And they called it In Quella Casa Buena Omega. And it was also marketed as House 6, which we talked about, and Zombie 10 in Mexico. Zombie um, 10. Can I watch it? Beyond the Darkness. Yeah, Beyond the Darkness yeah. is the American title. Or very well. Beyond the Darkness. Or English title, I should say. Beyond the Darkness is the English translated title. And then the American title is Buried Alive. Which only makes sense after you see the last scene of the movie. Um, yeah, but I don't really have, uh, other than that it was banned in several countries, which I don't know if that's actually true, or they just said that to make it sound cool. Because I know some movies that weren't actually banned, they still would say that, because then people would want to watch them. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's true of a lot of this, especially, like, this older, like, 70s era stuff. I mean, it's... <laughs> Actually, uh, I've got an odd and funny story related to this film. But I had to save it till alternate because it really didn't fit anywhere else. Of course, has anybody looked at the director's actual filmography? Joe D'Amato? All I know about is Intrapathagus, which I'm pretty sure is the way you're supposed to pronounce it. Uh, there's a lot of porn on his filmography, I know. Yes. Uh, the very first film... Uh, the Sexy Canterbury Tales. <laughs> I, 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 have a, I have a story regarding that, oddly enough. Ooh, this um, is going to be good. When I was young, um, my father had a specific cabinet that was locked for a particular reason. A porn cupboard. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and we had a break-in in the house. Back at, okay. back where, where I grew up, uh, you know, your relatives, they'd steal from you, they'd do whatever to you, but, you know, just so long as you didn't do it to, you know, non-related to family. That's, uh, family in the country can get messed up. So, he broke into the house and stole one item. And the item that he stole was Sexy Canterbury Tales. Okay. Which drove almost an obsessive fascination with that particular title because I had to wonder. The guy broke into the house, took That's all the good to do it. Why did he only take that? Even if it was just for porn, why only that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it became almost an obsession for me when I finally got to the age where I could, you know, buy the stuff for myself. I sought it out and finally got to watch a used copy that I had found that I had gotten uh, from a somewhat uh, sleazy dealer <laughs> and then, then like one, you do yeah and I was sitting there thinking to myself but even while watching it I still to this day do not quite understand the mystery as to why that one film <laughs> of everything there was the one film that he took <laughs> Sentimental attachment? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe there's something there. Well, you talk about this interesting 
aspects of his filmography. Joe D'Amato died at the start of 1999 and had eight releases in 1999. <laughs> 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 it, 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 it must have been one of those uh, workaholic ones. Like, Damn, how many from 98? Well, and probably a lot of quantity over quality, I'm, I'm guessing. I don't know his filmography very well, but from what I heard, it's mostly garbage. Like, this is pretty much his best movie. Right. That, uh, that joking family guy that made five whatever it was. What the hell was that? I couldn't hear over um, the sound of Dang someone breathing. panting into Dang their mic. Dane, mute your mic. <laughs> Did I screw it up yet again? Dude, yes, just, just mute your mic while you're not talking, because we just hear your breath. Yeah. Uh, let's see, uh, this came out in, what, what year was this? 1979. Oh, he, he was taking it easy that year. He only did four movies. Wow. <laughs> huh. Hmm. Yeah, I have not explored his filmography much at all. I mean... Obviously, you know, I'm familiar with Dario Argento, Lucio Fulci, Mario Bava, all of those, but um, Joe D'Amato wasn't one. And, of course, this movie went unnoticed by me for years. Nobody I knew ever talked talk to me about this movie. So, um, you know, his entire filmography has really, I haven't paid much attention. And, I mean, the more I'm learning about it, I guess, you know, like I said, what I hear is that most of it is crap. Um, but I'd be interested, especially in checking out, like, vintage 70s Italian porn. Like, that's totally up my alley. So, I, I gotta get my hands on. Maybe I'll go and steal <laughs> one from Brandon. <laughs> Break yeah. into his house. <laughs> Alright, so does anybody have anything else that they want to add before we uh, kind of close it up and and do our self promo? Not that I know. Um, last call. Give the give this movie a try if you can find it in a like decent cop. Does this have like a good physical release? Yes, it does. Um, it does. um yeah, there's two two distributors that have decent ones out. Um, Severin has one. And what's the other one, David? Uh, the other one is, uh, um, and, uh, I'll, uh, I'll just go on here and, and video it for a moment here so that you can see it. Um, the 88 Films uh, did a cover like this, and uh, normally 88 Films, they tend to region rock their uh, movies, but when they did this uh, campaign... They actually un uh, unlocked the regions where all who actually were able to take and contribute to the uh, transfer. And what Severin did is they just took eighty-eight uh, the rights to eighty-eight films and just distributed it on their uh, their site. So you're getting nothing different. So uh, 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 all that Severin did was uh, ju uh, just uh, uh, go over to eighty uh, films and I was like, "Hey, can we get that transferred? Let's distribute it over here in the U.S." So. So get you some, get get you some Buyo Omega Beyond the Darkness. Um, all right, so I guess we'll go ahead and wrap it up, um, and we can start with Red Raven. Why don't you tell us where you're from, what you do, and how people can find you? 
I am a Red Raven, and I book shows in the Milwaukee area, and I'm also a dead girl at Dead Girls Dark Coffin Classics, and you can find us on Vimeo.com slash DDCC. Awesome. Go check her out. And uh, Dustin, why don't you tell everybody where you're from, what you do, and how we can find you. Oh, uh, well, I live in Milwaukee and uh, collect horror, anything I can get my hands on. Um, I have an Instagram for the collection, uh, dhrhunter, all one word, which I'm supposed to be posting to soon. I also do another podcast on Thursday nights called Pop Culture Weekly, and uh, it's a bit of a different kind of discussion from, like, the movie talk here, like, last few weeks we've been doing like an interview with people and that gets pretty fun i'm also in the middle working on uh, launching my own channel uh it's actually up right now it's called the crypt of horrors and there's only one video on there so my goal for that channel is to have it be a place for both like collecting breakdowns like i went into town this is what i found today reviews of the stuff that I've picked up, like, after I've had a chance to watch it, and I even want to have some interviews on there. And if not for faulty equipment, I would have had my interview with Tim Seeley, creator of the horror comic Hackslash, up there as my first thing. But we had to reschedule that, and, um, yeah, I'm mad at Skype. Well, we look forward to that when it finally does happen. I Um, do, too. Yes. Uh, Jake, why don't you tell us where you're from, what you do, and how people can find you? Alright, well, I'm good with Jake. I'm from uh, Central Virginia, where uh, I am a wide, uh, very much an enjoyer of all sorts of media uh, movies, television, graphic novels, books, what have you. And um, I uh, frequently guest with Brandon on Septon Sin versus the World. I uh, do collaborative videos as well as, uh, and we've got a big one this week coming out this week, top 15 opening themes for TV shows, so that's going to be fun. And uh, I also do solo videos on one series that I've just started filming for. going to be a huge time suck, and I don't know how long it's going to take to get each video together on the days of the first one. But it's going to be, it's on Criterion Films, where I'm trying to hit every aspect of each release, including all the bonus features. And the first one up is a film that we covered here a few weeks ago, The Lure, which was a fun one with a few bonus features. Um, and I have my own channel, Code Jake, that's occasionally updated. Um, and hub pages also, Code Jake. Awesome. Sounds like you got some good stuff planned. Um, Brandon, why don't you tell us where you're from, what you do, and how people can find you? Uh, I am uh, I am a YouTube creator. Uh, my channel is Septum Sen vs. the World. I talk about physical media, principally. Uh, we've actually scaled back a little bit this time, uh, though we do still cover uh, physical media releases. Uh, we talk about celebrity deaths. Uh, we have... Uh, movie reviews on the channel and we still uh do what they call vlog uh, podcast really but we call it the vlogcast where we talk about the news of the day and things of such 
we have fun on our channel, and I encourage anyone to check us out. As uh, Kotobuki Jake had said, we are currently working on a top 15. Um, and, uh, matter of fact, edited eight of the 15 uh, entries today. So I uh, hope to uh, get that up fairly soon. Excellent. Thanks. How about you, Dane? Uh, why don't you let us know where you're from, what you do, and how people can find you? Well, uh, when I'm not accidentally breathing into the mic or letting my <laughs> background noise affect the podcast, I make independent films in Charlotte, North Carolina, and uh, currently working on getting a short film done in, in time to be submitted to a uh, horror anthology called Creepypasta, which is made by the same people who did uh, Grindsploitation, Clownsploitation, Meltsploitation, all that stuff. All and, kinds um, of exploitation. Absolutely. And um, all the preparations are being made, and I'll be able to shoot it and hopefully get it done right before the deadline, and uh, hopefully it gets in. And, uh, you know, that's something that's primarily what it's taking the focus right now and then uh working on getting my girlfriend's web series asylum origins harley the fan series getting that done and then um you know getting feature film scripts written and vetted by friends just to figure out what they need before moving to next stages you know just a lot of stuff going on Excellent. Sounds like you're keeping busy. Try and, uh, yes, David, our usual host, uh, why don't you tell us where you're from, what you do, and how people can find you? Well, uh, I am from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I run, uh, 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 run or have run for Milwaukee, which is a blog here in Milwaukee. And I also do reviews uh, as well as uh, discuss films with you guys here on Inside Movies you know, and I've enjoyed every uh, a bit of it. I'm also a producer on the side, so de definitely check out some of the projects that I have uh, um, backed, so, um, including Wrestle Massacre, which came out a couple, uh, about a month ago, so um, uh, definitely check that out, and uh, we'll see what, uh, what's up the road and down around the corner with Dana and myself, so. Cool. Sounds good. And as always, I'm Katie Cadaver from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I'm a body positive horror artist and alternative model when I'm not guesting as your host here on Inside Movies Galore. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon. And I'm also the makeup artist for the horror punk band Rat Bat Spider. And you can find them at ratbatspider.bandcamp.com. And I'm a dead girl for Degger's Dark Coffin Classics. And you can find uh, Degger's Dark Coffin Classics and Rat Bat Spider and myself all at Windigo Fest this weekend, um, October 5th through the 7th in downtown Manitowoc, Wisconsin. It's a festival of folklore, freaks, and all things Halloween. And Rat Bat Spider is going to be playing on Saturday night at 5 p.m., and then directly following that at uh, 7.06 p.m. is the parade. And you'll be able to see Rapid Spider in the parade. We've got something exciting planned for that. Um, so come on to Windigo Fest. Uh, that's this weekend, October 5th through the 7th in downtown Manitowoc. 
Uh, you can see Dead Girls Dark Coffin Classics there all three days. Uh, Dead Girls, various Dead Girls will be there. Um, I also perform and produce for the Grindhouse Tease Burlesque Collaborative, and you can find us on Facebook. We are also going to be um, doing a show on Saturday, October 20th at Frank Power Plant. It's actually my birthday show. It's Katie Cadaver's birthday spectacular, so I'd love to celebrate my birthday with you all. Um, there's going to be burlesque by Grindhouse Seas and music by Night of Cup, Primal Enemy, The Living Dead Kennedys, and The Radiations. That's Saturday, October 20th at Frank's Power Plant in Milwaukee. And I'm also a Tromet with Troma Entertainment. And you can find all the best Troma merch at Troma.com. And finally, I'm an editor for Movies Glory of Milwaukee. And I've been working on helping um, get some things organized for the podcast. We're currently getting our October list of films uh, finalized. I believe we already have next week's uh, film lined up, uh, which is Pumpkinhead, actually. So that's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to that. I haven't. I have not sat down and watched Pumpkinhead all the way through, so I'm excited to do that. Um, you have it? So yeah, that's, that's what I No, I know. It's one of the very first, like, I didn't get to see a whole lot of, like, legit horror growing up, but Pumpkinhead's one of the ones that I saw, I saw that movie very early in life, and I've always loved well, Pumpkinhead. it's on my shame list for being a movie that I have not completed, completely watched, so I'm very well, much looking forward to getting it off of there. <laughs> I, guess I, I guess I haven't seen Carrie, I suppose. I oh, know. that's fair. You can put that one on your list. So, alright, well, everybody, please remember to like us on Facebook, subscribe to the YouTube channel, and share us with your friends. Do it. And, uh, everyone. Bye. Bye. This is how I found you. Let me demonstrate. This is your brain on the box. This is my brain on the box. Does anybody else feel like a fried egg?